Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you again this week. I'll invite you again to join me in your copy of God's Word in John chapter 12. We'll begin reading in just a moment at verse 27. We're in the midst of something of a series within a series, a series within our study of John's Gospel. Uh, as you can see by the title of this morning's message, The Mystery of Christ, Part 3. There will be a Part 4, Lord willing, uh, this next week as well. We're doing this because of the ways that Jesus is laying out for us in what he says in this chapter, the, the outworkings that Paul spoke about in the Ephesians 2 text that Seth just read to us, uh, which he calls there the mystery of Christ. When we hear Paul describe it in Ephesians 2 as something that had not been made known to the sons of men in other generations, we could tell right there that he's talking about something special, something very significant. And what he announced there is exactly what we have been seeing Jesus describe and speak to in our text here recently. Last week, Jesus emphasized the necessity of his death as he is pursuing his Father's plan for his glorification on this earth. And we saw there that it's not, he's not just speaking of death in general, not just any death, but a death in which he has, he's laying himself down in the service of God, in self-sacrifice that God is going to use to bear much fruit, which is how Jesus describes that. As he continues this, this week, we hear him make some statements in our text before us that are simply profound, and especially we're going to draw attention to verses 31 and 32. Those two verses are really front and central for us this morning, although we'll bring in the verses around them as well. Uh, but let's describe at the outset here where we're going this morning. Jesus is going to say in verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And we're hearing in those words the declaration of a victory over Satan, the enemy of God. But when we peer into the nature of that victory, what we find is that in particular, this is a victory that Jesus is describing that has to do uniquely with the Gentile nations and their access to God. Much of the focus that Paul had in Ephesians 2. I hope that we'll see that this morning. And one of the things that long-term study of God's word ought to do for God's people is exactly what I hope will happen for us today. It, it does every week that we gather and that we sit under God's word. We're being familiarized with individual texts. We're coming to understand them better, what he meant here and here. That happens weekly. Weekly we are helped to know how God's word affects our life, how we are to live uh, in response to what we read, what he reveals to us. But all the while that all of that is happening, what is also happening to God's people is that our comprehension of the big picture of God's plan is growing as we come week in, week out, year after year, sitting under the preached word. Our perspective is widening to see what it is that God is doing in Christ. And so we should be less prone then you're familiar with this phrase, we should be less prone to miss the forest for the trees 
as we submit to his word over the course of our lives, as we spend our time studying it. Uh, And this text, I think, serves us particularly well in that direction. So we do want to hear and understand Jesus' particular points in verses 31 and 32, especially this morning. But as we work at that, as we're trying to understand the mystery of Christ played out here in this chapter, I hope that we also strengthen our sense of redemptive history itself. What has God told us about the plan that he is working to bring salvation to sinners through the death of his son, Jesus Christ? So let's hear again here as we begin what Jesus says in verses 27 to 33. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Jesus continues in this way. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The overall direction that we're going here centers on verses 31, really 31 to 33, but it encompasses 27 down to 33. We won't take this text like we normally do, though. We won't go directly in order of the verses, but they're all going to come to bear on what it is that we see. And what we see in particular this morning is this. We see that the mystery of Christ entails a particular defeat of Satan. A particular defeat of God's enemy. But let me reread one more time here, verses 31 to 33, since we're centering on these. And I want to I read them with this question in mind. Here's the question. What do these verses tell us about the effect of the cross? He said this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What do these verses tell us about the effect of the cross? And there are three steps we can take in order to answer this question well. And that's the way that we'll structure things this morning. The first step is the most simple one. I think it is fairly simple and clear, but we need to make it clear before we move on to the second and third steps. Here's the first step that we need to take. We need to recognize that verses 31 and 32 are statements about the effect of Jesus' death. The reason I think that that's fairly simple is because it seems, Jesus seems to make it quite clear that this whole section, 23 to 33, are Jesus' comments about his upcoming death. Notice, for instance, the tie between 
verse 23, where he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in what we saw last week, he is clearly there speaking about the cross. So verse 23, the hour has come. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. It's all a reflecting on the thing that those Greeks' inquiry for Jesus has now sparked, which is the imminence of the cross. This is what Jesus is, uh, is bringing to those that he's addressing here. It's clearly the thing, his death, it's clearly the thing that is troubling his soul in verse 27, isn't it? In that incredible picture that we're given there of the true humanity of our Lord on display as he trembles at what? At the thought of the cross. It's the thing that he supposes some would think he ought to pray to be rescued from, this death that's drawing so near. It's the thing for which he has come into the world, he says. These are statements about his death. And really the easy clincher is seeing how verses 32 and 33 close it all out. He says in 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You can hear 32's tie to 31. Speaking of his being lifted up from the earth, and he then eliminates any doubt, if there were any, with verse 33. John adds, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Is this very clear to all of us, that what he is addressing in this text is... ...his impending death. These are statements about the effect of his death. So that's step one. Now, I'm going to assume that to be the case as we go on to step two, right? So step two for us to take then is this. It's to recognize that he's speaking here of his death as fundamentally transforming Gentiles' access to God. It's not the only thing he's describing, but it is a principal thing that he's describing. Can you tell in the way he speaks in verses 31 and 32 that something big is about to change when this death comes? Can you hear it in what he says? He spoke of it up in verse 24 that this death of his was going to, as he put it, was going to bear much fruit. This is why he's going to lay down his life in this way, so that he might bear much fruit. And most certainly it is true that that fruit refers to the salvation that he is winning at the cross, the salvation of everyone who will be saved. It's at the cross that that victory takes place. It's Jesus' blood that ransoms sinners. But we're missing a key point Jesus is making if we only think of what he's describing as referring to the general reality of atonement for his people's sins. Because as God's plan for the atonement of his people's sins is enacted and happens, there are a number of things that are happening. There are specifics within that work of atonement, within that fruit, that Jesus is speaking to. It's the second thing for us to understand here. It helps us if we, if we do a few things. If we broaden our gaze a bit first here, 
from this immediate passage, we might remember what Jesus said in John 10, verses 15 and 16. He said there, I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. You remember when he said that? We heard there the progression in the movement of Jesus' work. He spoke of sheep he has in this sheepfold, and then he said that he has other sheep to bring, and that they will listen to his voice, with the result that there will be one flock and one shepherd. There is coming a situation that is not now, but it will be, when I go and bring that flock and, and lead out one flock led by Jesus Christ. We haven't looked at this, but maybe you remember Jesus' reply to the Gentile woman in Matthew 15, 24. is a shocking reply that he gives when this woman, this Gentile woman, comes to him. She has a demon-possessed daughter, and she's begging him to heal her daughter. And knowing Jesus, we expect a great amount of of. Uh, gentleness and sympathy, and that is not what we find in his initial response. He responds to her starting in verse 24 of that chapter. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Paul describes Christ's salvation in Romans 1.16 as to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's how Paul describes the redemptive historical progression walked by Christ. What are we seeing in all of those things? We're seeing that as God sends his Messiah to the people of Israel, there is a progression to the salvation as it comes. To the Jew first and also to to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. This is the way that it is described throughout the New Testament. And noticing that emphasis, that order of the gospel's movement as Christ now is come and is walking the earth, it helps us to see what Jesus is announcing in verse 32. That's where this is most clearly seen. Look down at verse 32. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is what he says is going to come as a result of this death. That verb, draw, I will draw all people to myself, that verb is not synonymous with something like call or tempt or woo or persuade. That's not the meaning of this word at all. This verb is a very physical idea, to drag something, to pull It's the verb used in Acts 21.30 when the people in Jerusalem drag Paul out of the temple in order to try to beat him to death. And it's the same verb that was used back in John 6.44 when Jesus said there, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Put that and this together. Everyone who is drawn like this by the Father... Ephesians 6, by Christ here, will be saved. So then who are these all people? When I am lifted up from the earth, 
I will draw all people to myself. Who are these people? Well, obviously they're not every man, woman, and child ever born. But see, we can understand this morning that 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 idea that he's talking about every man, woman, and child, we can understand this morning that that's out of place here, not just because it's the wrong meaning behind that word that Jesus uses, but also because part of Jesus' whole point here has been that because of the cross, sinners from all tongues and tribes and nations will be brought to salvation. This is the point Jesus is making in this context. And my friends, remember what we heard from Seth earlier. Remember that this was the point that Paul spent the most time making in that Ephesians 2 passage when he was telling us about the mystery of Christ. In fact, if you would, keep your finger here. Turn back to Ephesians 2.11. And let's just walk through slowly some of the things that we read there. He's addressing a group of Gentile Christians. Starting in verse 11 of Ephesians 2, he says this, Therefore, remember, think back, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, you can hear some derision there, certainly this physical distinction of circumcision and it's and a spiritual significance now has been overplayed by the Jews as they insult you and speak of you as the uncircumcision. Yes, that's the case. But then he repeats the remember in verse 12, right? Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Gentiles, remember what what your existence was before this point. Remember that at one time you were, in fact, without God and without hope in the world. And the distinction is one between Jew and Gentile in what he's saying, isn't it? Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, how? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Then he quotes the Old Testament in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. There are some in the church, Jewish believers, who are those who were near. And there are others in the church, Gentile believers, who are those who were far off. And guess what? Both of them needed peace preached to them through the blood of Christ. It was not an advantage of salvation, but it was an advantage having to do with some sort of proximity. There's a nearness and a a far off that has been undone by the blood of the cross. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Last verse we'll read, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God.
Do you see how Paul's point there is that there was a substantial change in Gentiles' relationship to God, Gentiles' access to God, to the saving promises of God. And it was wrought, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, as they who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And this is what Jesus says at the end of verse 32. We can come back to John 12 now. He says, when he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. So step one was to just recognize that this passage is talking about his death. Step two was to see further that it also then explains his death's impact upon Gentiles' access to God. We're going to keep talking about that, but let's bring in now the third and final step for us to take this morning. And that is to recognize, given what he says here, that this breaking open of the nations to the gospel is a decisive defeat of Satan. And we hear it in particular in the statements that Christ makes in verse 31. He says this, and hear it in the context that we've already seen this morning. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. My goodness, this is two statements that there's a lot to say about those two statements. But maybe let's just sit with them for a minute before we look closer, right? Even before getting specific, we can notice that Jesus is pointing at his cross and declaring victory, isn't he? He's speaking of his coming death, and he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is a declaration that victory is won at the cross. And it's, ama it's an amazing thing for us to think about, sitting here on this side of the cross. He is pointing here at an event that for us is a past event, and he's declaring that their victory is won. Have you thought lately about the implications of that for us in our lives today? That the event he's pointing forward to as victory is for us a past event. He is our champion. He is fighting for us. He is the only hope that we have. And he says the cross is victory. What does that do for your hope today and for your peace today? It should do the very same thing that is done for us when we hear the closing words of John 16, where Jesus says to his followers, in this world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. If we are in Christ, the battles, <clears throat> excuse me, the battles that we fight in this life, in this world, are difficult to be sure. But they are fought always against conquered enemies. This world is a place that rages against our God and against his anointed. Psalm 2, we saw that recently. And therefore against us. 
this enemy is a conquered enemy. Your own sinful flesh that remains as you, as a Christian, engage in daily battle against this force. You are daily working to mortify the flesh, as John Owen put it. You're working to choke it out. You're battling an enemy whose days are numbered. Because this world and the things of this world are passing away together with their lusts. Our battle against the flesh is a battle against an enemy whose days are already numbered. So the point then is this. Because of the cross, you have no need whatsoever, no reason whatsoever to give up or despair in your battles against sin. These are incredible implications of this. You stumble in your battle against sin. You fall. In Christ, you get right back up again. You turn to the God who has beckoned you to come to him always. You repent to him. You ask forgiveness with the assurance that he grants forgiveness to those who are hidden in Christ. And you get right back in the fight. And you do this over and over again, praising the God who allows it, who has made way for it. Because you know it's his mercy that gives us the ability to do that. So this knowledge that Christ has won the victory does not make us apathetic toward indwelling sin. In fact, in essence, quite the opposite. But what it does is it fills us with peace and confidence that become then fuel for an unceasing war against sin. Because this is a battle that can be fought always from a state of peace and hope. Because Jesus is pointing to an event in our past already and saying victory is found there. This is a great help for us as his people still living in this world. Now we need to look more closely at what Jesus says here in these statements though because again as we said at the beginning we have an opportunity this morning to recognize some wider biblical descriptions about Christ's defeat of our enemy. The first statement that he gives is this. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Would you agree that whatever he means by judgment here, that this isn't good for the world? If you're the world, this is not a good thing to hear. As he says, now is the judgment of this world. Whatever that means, it's bad news for the world, isn't it? It's not going to be good for the world or for those who love the world or for those who belong to the world. Judgment sometimes means one thing and sometimes means another thing in terms of how this word is used. It's used very commonly in two distinct ways, both of them courtroom situations. Sometimes the word judgment is used to speak of something like the verdict that the judge gives, like the judge is rendering his judgment about a matter, making a declaration about the reality of things. Other times this word is used to refer to the actual punishment so the effect of the verdict that comes. And we have every reason, I think, to hear Jesus making both of those points as he's pointing us at the cross. Because without a doubt, both of those things are true. The guilty verdict upon the world. It's nowhere more clear than it is at the cross, is it? 
D.A. Carson puts it well when he writes that, quote, in the callous murder of the Son of God, sin displays itself in its most virulently evil form. It has been God's claim about the nature of this fallen world throughout Scripture. He told us in Psalm 2 that the rulers of this world, what characterizes them in their hearts is that they rage and plot against God and against his anointed one. And they do that representing the whole system of the world. We were told by John's own pen in John 3.19, these words, using the same word for judgment. He said, and this is the judgment, colon. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So is God right as he gives those descriptions and makes those pronouncements? Is he right in his judgment of the world in those places? John's gospel is famously devoid of any parables at all. Do you remember the parable in Matthew 21? We call it the parable of the tenants. Does that ring a bell? There's a vineyard owner who leases his vineyard to tenants, and then the vineyard owner goes off. And after a while, he sends servants one at a time back to the tenants to collect what's due. And as he does that, as the servants come one at a time, one at a time, the tenants beat that servant or kill that servant. And in the end of the parable, the owner of the, of the vineyard says to himself, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll send them my own son. Because surely they'll respect him. Surely they'll honor him. And he sends his son, and they kill him too. Right? Now, obviously, the point of the parable is not that God thought that the world would respect his son if God sent his son. That's not the point here at all. The point of the parable is sort of a question. Are they really as bad as they seem? Surely not. Surely they can't be as bad as word gets around, as people maybe describe. And in the parable, what demonstrates that, yes, they really are as evil as that, what demonstrates it is the way they treat his son when he comes. And then we find the cross. How evil is evil? Well, it's this evil. When the greatest gift of love that could be sent them by their own maker is sent to them, God's own beloved, when the greatest gift of love that could be sent is sent, they kill him. And what judgment is established there at the cross? Better than it ever could be or ever will be. God has always been exactly right when he told us just how evil this evil world is. It's at the cross that the display of that judgment is seen in sort of its telos, in its ultimate way. And my friends, this is one place where these verses should hit each of us very close to home. Because the verdict that we're hearing there that's on display like that at the cross, it's a verdict about the depth of sin's evil. There are not different species of evil, and one of them was shown to be what it is at the cross. Evil is evil, and it's what's being revealed 
there. And what that means is that the cross did not just reveal truths about evil as an abstract idea. It revealed the true nature of the evil that resides in your own sinful flesh and in mine. The cross should make us tremble because it displays the true potential for evil that our fallen human nature possesses. And I would simply pose the question for us in case the Holy Spirit would use it at this point in your life. Do we look at the cross and stand in horrified awe at the potential destructiveness of our own sinful tendencies? Or maybe an easier way to put it is just how much do we really trust ourselves? At the cross, the judgment that God has given is put on display. And I think we're right to hear that in what Jesus says here when he says, now is the judgment of this world. But that is not all that he's referring to because of what he says next. There's more than just a condemning verdict in this judgment of the world. There's also a judging action that's going to take place as a result of the cross. And that's what leads us to the second statement in verse 31. You can see it best, I think, there. You can hear his action that he's speaking of when he says, Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That's not just a description of something. That's a declaration of action, isn't it? For the sins of the world to be dealt with. Remember, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know how he intended that. We know how John's been using the word world all the way along here. For the sins of the world to be dealt with, what must happen? And the way Jesus answers that here is he says, the ruler of this world must be cast out, and now he will be. This is Satan that Jesus is referring to. John will speak of the ruler of this world two more times in the chapters that follow. John 14, 30 says, the ruler of this world is coming, and literally, and he has nothing in me. And then John 16, 11, Jesus says, the ruler of this world has been judged. This is clearly a description of our great enemy, the deceiver, Satan. Now, what does it mean that he must be cast out? That is a really good question, as it turns out, and it's not an easy one. And I want to make a case to you this morning that that declaration is speaking of both a, we could call it like this, a heavenly effect and an earthly effect. And I say that because in other places where some of these same descriptions, shockingly same descriptions are given, there are two points being made there about God's victory over Satan. Not just one. Can I show these to you? Now, things get even more complicated, unfortunately, because guess where these statements show up? Well, they show up in the book of Revelation. And you might have heard that the church, and even this church, has not historically and is not in some ways of one mind about how to interpret the book of Revelation. That's a question with a great amount of diversity in God's people, a lot of, a lot of wrestling and questions. That complicates things when we go there. 
Can I sum up the controversy for you in one sentence? That's been fun to try to decide how to even do that. I think this is pretty helpful. It doesn't encompass everything. A lot of it comes down to whether you think that some of the victories described in the book of Revelation refer to victories won at the cross, or instead whether you think that all of the victories being described there are describing future victories that haven't happened yet. There are a number of victories that happen in the book of Revelation. God seems to win again and again and again. So are they all describing future events or are some of them describing essentially the cross? I will tell you, I think some of the victories being described in the book of Revelation are referring to the cross for some of the reasons that I'm about to give to you. But even if you don't agree with that, this morning, that's okay. Now, we are not going there. We're not going to, not going to try to defend that. It's, it's okay, and it will, you'll still be helped, I think, this morning, because all I want you to do is to notice the wording that's used by John, this John, same guy, to describe the manner in which Satan is defeated. Because it still helps us understand the sort of judgment and conquering that Jesus is describing. So, I'm saying that we should be thinking... As we hear him say, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I'm saying that we should be thinking both of a heavenly effect and an earthly one here. Why do I say that? Well, go go first to Revelation chapter 12. And we'll start at verse 7. I'll read verses 7 to 11. See if you notice any similarities in description with what we have just heard Jesus say in verse 31. Revelation 12, 7. John describes what he is depicting in this way. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven, saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Doesn't that last part remind you of verse 25 last week? Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And he says here, of those who have conquered, they loved not their lives even unto death. But what do we see here in what we just read? We see particularly emphasized of Satan, that he is the accuser. In verse 9, he's the deceiver of the whole world. In verse 10, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And it's, it's described as being a casting out from heaven. Now, can you tell what he was doing there? 
before he was cast out of God's presence. What was he doing? He was busy accusing God's people of their sin. Maybe you can see why I might think that this speaks of the cross, because when else is the now of verse 10? When has that changed? When was it that Satan stopped being able to bring accusation? When has this salvation come against the one who accuses the brothers of sin? It's when those sins are atoned for. We read this in Colossians 2, 13 to 15 as well. Let me just read this to you. Paul writes, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? Verse 14, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Yes, we who are washed in the blood of Jesus, we had a record of debt against us. And the wrath of God was coming. But he made us alive and forgave us of trespasses by canceling the record of debt. He says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then he says, in verse 15, that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the heavenly part of this casting out. Our enemy thrown out of the heavenly courtroom, as it were, having been disarmed, Colossians 2, of his ability to accuse the saints. But there's, there's also an earthly element that is described when these, this battle language and victory is depicted. We see it alluded to in the Revelation 12 passage. Satan is called, in verse 8, the deceiver of the whole world. And verse 10 announced there that the kingdom of our God now because of what they're celebrating. The kingdom of our God has come, which we know entails both Jew and Gentile being joined together in salvation. The last place for us to look, as we're looking at now this earthly element, is the more controversial of the two. I will grant you that. In the book of Revelation, you may or may not be happy with me. That's okay. We can talk about those things, and we will come to that at some point in the future, I have no doubt. Uh, but again, what we're noticing is the common language that's used to describe how God defeats Satan. So go ahead now in Revelation to chapter 20. Revelation 20 is the millennium chapter. Pre-mill, all-mill, post-mill. This is ground zero. And all sorts of questions surround the notion of what exactly is being described here. What is the time period being described? And again, I'll risk it. I'll tip my hand and say, because I have to for what we need to see here, that I think John is describing something present, not something future. I have not always thought that. Nor even in the grand scheme of my life have I landed there for very long, relatively speaking. This is a, something I have come to change my mind on, and many people uh, will tend to do that. I've wrestled with it a great deal, is my point, and I have great respect for many godly pastors and scholars who know more about God's Word than, than I do, who see this differently than I do. 
I hope that this is an opportunity for us to practice what we preach about acknowledging the ability for us to appreciate and hear from one another in our differences and some of those distinctives. I just don't think we can do John 12, 31 justice if we don't take notice of what's said here. So we're not going to avoid those things if they help us to, to understand God's word. So I'll just, I'm going to drop this in here. And I'll look forward to hearing what it might do to your family discussions at lunch today or in your care group sessions. Those are great times to talk more about some of those things. Revelation 20, let me read the first three verses. John says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And we'll stop there. Of course, the driving issue is one of Bible interpretation. How are we intended to interpret what John is saying in the way that he's writing it? And again, I'm staying out of that for this morning because it requires far more than we would have time to give it. What I want you to notice is simply this. When God defeats Satan here, how does he do it? It says he binds him, verse 3, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And you need to know that translating that word nations is a very wooden choice, because that that is what that word means. It's also the word that is always used when describing the Gentiles. When you see Gentiles in the New Testament, it's this word. We've heard it a lot in Ephesians 2 and 3 as we've looked back there in the last couple of weeks. At one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, it's this word. I, Paul, a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. It's the same word here. Satan is bound so that he might not deceive the Gentiles any longer. And here's the point that I would suggest to you. Where where is Satan's grip on the Gentile nations broken? When is it that the floodgates of the gospel to the Gentiles are broken open in the way that Paul's describing in Ephesians 2? There's only one answer to that question, and that answer is the cross. The whole world lived in unbelief and rebellion, and God called Abram out, gave him his own land, and you have now a microcosm for a great length of time where God's presence dwells. His word is heard and taught, and darkness covers the rest of the earth. When does that change? It changes when by his blood he breaks down the barriers of the dividing wall, and he at last reconciles those who were far off, those who were strangers to the covenants of promise, those who had, Paul said, no hope without God in the world. Jesus says, as he looks to the cross, now a week away, John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you see what he is saying is about to change because of the cross? He is declaring his death here. 
And what he declares is that it's a death that will bear the fruit of opening up the world to the saving power of the gospel in a way that it was prevented before. So that in the cross of Christ, those who were far off will now be drawn near. And what's more, he's declaring that that change of access represents nothing less than a definitive breaking of the prince of the power of the air and the death grip that he has held on this world since Genesis chapter 3. And nothing less than the beginning of the inevitable end. Not just of Satan, but of sin itself. He trembles at this hour. But the last thing that Jesus wants is to be saved from it. It's why he came. As we read in, what do you know, 1 John 3.8, same guy again. He says there, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Are you seeing what that means? What the New Testament is showing us about how God has worked redemptive history. How he has brought his salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. All of this is God's plan in Christ for all the nations. And I hope we see this morning how much these statements cause us to glorify and praise our Lord. Because they take our focus off of ourselves and onto Christ. When in the last couple of weeks have we been focusing on ourselves as we hear this news? It's all pointing us to Christ and what he is doing for us on that day as he hangs. In fact, these passages really take us off the playing field altogether. We are in the stands shouting in pure joy and exaltation as our Lord has marched into Jerusalem in victory and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Praise be to God for the champion. that he has provided us. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for him. In him is our hope. In him is our salvation sure. Because he sits at your right hand, untouchable. The victory is won. It truly is finished. Lord, we thank you for showing us through his ministry, his words, the words that your spirit brought to the apostles and prophets as they gave us the New Testament. We thank you, Lord, for the ways that you have continued to explain, to articulate, to tell us in this debriefing exactly what it is you did that day at the cross. Men and women passed by and saw him in horror. He was nothing to look at. He was He looked rejected by God. They had no idea what you were doing. Lord, thank you for your word, which lets us look back and see the glories of your plan. Some of the details of which were not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as they have now been revealed to your holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Lord, thank you for growing our minds to understand your purposes in Christ. And all of it does what it has always done. It leads us to stand in awe of your wisdom and your power. Lord, we thank you.
Thank you for who you have been for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you. Would you please stand with me? Let's respond once more to our Lord with a song. If you prefer to follow on your book, this is hymn 214. dismissed this morning with words from Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are dismissed. Go in his peace. <laughs>